Hello, and welcome to the Regulation Best Interests Informed CRS webinar presented by Pulsinelli. Today's webinar is being recorded and will be available for replay within 24 hours on our website. During today's webinar, you will be asked to answer a CLE polling question. In order to receive your CLE certificate of attendance, you must answer the polling question. CLE certificates will be emailed within 48 hours after the webinar concludes to all those who answered the polling question. Please use the Q&A box to submit questions to our speakers throughout the webinar. If you experience any technical difficulties, please type your question in the Q&A box for assistance. To access the materials from today's webinar, please reference the Resources tab located next to the speaker bio. I would now like to turn the webinar over to Pulsinelli, to Pulsinelli shareholder Rick Levine. Thank you, Emma. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. That's a quote from former Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Louis Brandeis. It's also a phrase that the Securities Exchange Commission has been a fan of throughout its entire history, starting in 1933 with the passage of the Securities Act. Today, we're going to be talking about regulation best interest and form CRS. And much of our focus will be on disclosure, disclosure to clients of broker-dealers and disclosure of material information and conflicts to clients of investment advisors. I'm Rick Levine. I'm the chair of the FinTech and Regulation Practice at Polsonelli. I've been a FinTech and securities regulatory lawyer since 1999. I got into the industry when E-Trade was using chimpanzees to advertise their new service offering to show people that trading over the internet was easy. Uh, I'm joined by my colleagues, Peter Waltz and Daniel McAvoy, who will introduce themselves. So Peter, let me turn it over to you. Hi everyone, I'm Peter Waltz. I'm a shareholder in Pulsinelli Securities Group, Practice Group and a member of our FinTech practice team. Um, I grew up as a transactional attorney working on uh, uh, general M&A and public company type disclosure issues. But in the last several years, my practice has really focused more on uh, investment management representation such as of broker-dealers, RIAs, and private fund sponsors. And Dan? Hi, uh, this is Dan McAvoy. I'm a shareholder in Postinelli's New York office. Uh, I, am too, am a member of the uh, Securities Practice Group, as well as the FinTech team and uh, the, um, the investment funds team. I've been advising companies with respect to federal securities laws uh, in regulatory manner for over 15 years. Thank you, Dan. So today we're going to walk you through an introduction to regulation best interest and what are the general obligations, what constitutes a retail customer, what constitutes a recommendation, what are the disclosure obligations, the duty of care, what constitute conflicts that have to be disclosed, how to be compliant with regulation best interest, We'll discuss form CRS and how that must be delivered, what form CRS must include, and then we're going to talk briefly about also state law implications. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Peter, who can walk us through what is a retail customer and what are recommendations. Oh, oh sorry. Actually, I'm going to turn it over to Dan, <laughs> who's going to walk us through an introduction in the history and general obligations of regulation best interest. Sorry about that, Dan. Take it away. Yeah, no, no problem, no problem. So, so, so why is it that we're, we're here today and, and why is it that we uh, need to go ahead and uh, worry about this new compliance regime that's going to go into effect a little over a month from now? Uh, in June of 2019, the SEC adopted a package of reforms to help retail customers uh, ha have better, uh, excuse me, to, 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 to help to provide a better standard for retail customers to both understand uh, what their investment advisors and broker dealers are doing, uh, as well as to establish an actual standard of care that's above and beyond what broker dealers already had under FINRA rules. Uh, in addition to they clarified uh, Investment Advisors Act rules uh, and the fiduciary standard that's developed over time through 
both rulemaking, but primarily through speech making and enforcement actions uh, over the course of many, many years, as well as um, determining uh, dual hatting uh, and, and to show when you have a dual registrant really is dealing with uh, the the broker dealer side, which is and and information that's solely incidental to their to the um, and uh, standard uh, excuse me investment advice that's solely incident incidental to their service as a broker dealer, as opposed to when they're acting as an investment advisor. So this establishes a new uh, standard of care that is similar but not identical to those fiduciary duties that have been established for, uh, under the Advisors Act. Now the Advisors Act has a formal fiduciary duty that require that, that um, advisors are required to look out in the best interest of their uh, clients uh, in, in a number of different ways. And so after the uh, after the fallout of, of the financial crisis, there there, there were a few themes, and, and OC uh, began to uh, perform uh, examinations with respect to uh, a number of different areas where they would provide um, not not only risk alerts but a, a summary of the of their priorities for examinations. And one of the real consistent themes has been that the disclosure of conflicts of interest in protecting retail investors has been a priority in nearly every one of these alerts and, and every one of these sets of uh, uh, excuse me, sets of uh, examination priorities. <clears throat> so uh, what, what happened ultimately is that, that under Dodd-Frank, there was a requirement that for the Department of Labor to come out with a fiduciary rule, which would provide, uh, which would impose fiduciary duties on all investment professionals that, that indirectly or directly provided investment advice to retirement accounts. Now, that basically means everyone was going to be subject to this because pretty much all investment advisors and all broker dealers deal with retirement accounts in one way or another. It basically expanded, expanded the, the fiduciary responsibility that uh, people have under ERISA when they're, when they're managing plan assets and, and applied that fiduciary standard to all investment professionals. Uh, ultimately, this was struck down by the Court of Appeals. Um, and so the SEC had to take matters into their own hands and try to come up with a, a set of rules that would define the duties and responsibilities of, of broker dealers uh, and, and strengthen those responsibilities that, that uh, broker dealers have to their clients, as well as to sort of harmonize a little bit um, what broker dealers and investment advisors need to do in terms of their responsibilities. And in addition to proposed form CRS, which provides a uh, plain English uh, short summary to retail investors. Um, my apologies, I'm having trouble with the slides here. So in essence, uh, regulation best interest creates four new obligations for broker dealers. They're somewhat similar to the obligations that broker dealers already had um, in, in some ways, but, but this also brings it under the uh, Exchange Act and, and uh, under, the, um, under the eyes of, of OC. Um, so there, there are four uh, different distinct obligations. The first being the disclosure obligation um, that all material facts uh, regarding the scope in terms of the relationship with the retail investor needs to be disclosed, including material facts relating to conflicts of interest. Uh, the care obligation, which is somewhat uh, similar to the, to the suitability rule, um, where uh, the firms need to exercise reasonable diligence, care, and skill when making recommendations, uh, and to make those recommendations in light of the retail customer's investment profile. Um, Third is the conflict of interest obligation, where there must be um, enforced and maintained written policies reasonably designed to mitigate conflicts of interest. And then finally, there's the compliance obligation, which everyone here, I'm sure, has dealt with quite a bit already, 
uh, which is to go ahead, establish, maintain, and enforce written policies and procedures reasonably designed to achieve compliance with best regulation best interest. Up to you, Peter. Thanks, Dan. So the general obligation imposed by Reg BI is that a broker-dealer or a natural person who is an associated person of a broker-dealer must act in the best interest of a retail customer when making a recommendation of any securities transaction or investment strategy involving securities to the retail customer. So with Reg BI, that term retail customer is pretty darn key to the application of the entire reg. So what is a retail customer? Reg BI defines a retail customer as any natural person or the legal representative of a natural person who receives a recommendation of any securities transaction or investment strategy involving securities from a broker-dealer and uses the recommendation primarily for personal, family, or household purposes. There's quite a bit packed in that definition, so to break it down a little further, a retail customer includes only a natural person or a legal rep of a natural person. Here, I should note that a legal rep of a natural person only covers non-professional legal representatives and thus would not include financial service professionals such as RIAs, corporate fiduciaries, and their employees. Of note, a legal rep who was formerly a regulated financial services professional but who is not currently regulated would be considered non-professional. Looking at a couple other components of this definition of retail customer, with respect to the phrase investment strategy involving securities, I'll note that Reg BI applies broadly to any recommendation of a securities transaction, including, of course, purchase, sale, or exchange of a security, but also to any investment strategy involving securities, and even to an explicit or implicit recommendation to hold a security. Moving on, other parts of this definition, Reg BI only applies where a natural person or their legal rep uses a recommendation for personal, family, or household purposes. The SEC's view is that a retail customer has used a recommendation if one, he or she opens a brokerage account with a BD, regardless of whether that BD receives comp, or two, he or, he or she has an existing account with the BD and receives a recommendation from the BD, regardless of whether the BD receives or will receive compensation from that recommendation, i.e., this would mean that Reg BI applies to a firm if a client of the firm receives advice from a firm rep, but then executes a transaction at a different firm, and that's because Reg BI applies at the time a recommendation is made. And three, use in the eyes of a, the SEC would include a situation where a BD receives or will receive comp as a result of that recommendation, even if the retail customer does not have an account at the firm. So pretty broad application. For a recommendation to be used for personal, family, or household purposes, the SEC has stated the phrase broadly means any recommendation to a natural person for his or her account, other than recommendations to natural persons seeking services for commercial or business purposes. Thus, whether a person, excuse me, whether a natural person or a legal rep uses a recommendation for personal, family, or household purposes is determined by the character of the recommendation and potentially on a look-back or hindsight basis. The SEC has also stated that personal, family, or household purposes would include retirement accounts, such as IRAs or uh, workplace retirement plans, such as 401k plans. And finally, I should note that the SEC did not adopt a high net worth test similar to the institutional suitability exception in existing FINRA rules. As a result, Reg BI extends to dealings with any natural person who uses a recommendation for personal, family, or household purposes, no matter their net worth. 
Other big component of the Reg BI, another key term, recommendation. I'll note the SEC did not define recommendation for purposes of Reg BI and instead has pointed to existing interpretations under the anti-fraud provisions of the federal securities laws and FINRA Rule 2111. In general, these interpretations look to whether a communication would reasonably be viewed as a call to action and reasonably would influence an investor to trade a particular security or group of securities. General rule here, the more individually tailored a communication is towards a particular customer or targeted group of customers, the greater likelihood that it might be viewed as a recommendation. Whether a communication is subject to Reg BI, we should point out that um, it's whether or not that person has been deemed to make a recommendation, not necessarily the location or the setting of the communication. In guidance, the SEC staff has addressed the applicability of Reg BI to informal settings, such as a meeting with a retail customer at a place like a golf course or somewhere in a non-office setting. The SEC staff has emphasized the setting of a communication is not necessarily indicative of whether Reg BI applies to that communication. SEC guidance goes on to make clear that Reg BI applies to count recommendations, including recommendations of securities account types, you know, generally speaking, whether or not a person should open an IRA or roll assets over from one type of account to another. Finally, with respect to recommendation, the SEC has pointed out that general education materials when provided to a retail customer are not a recommendation unless packaged in a such a way where they, where they essentially clearly are. So things that might that the SEC has said, hey, this is just general investment education materials, not a recommendation, would be just very basic general financial and investment information, such as investment concepts, effects of inflation, et cetera, providing general information about things like employer-sponsored retirement or benefit plans, and providing very general or basic asset allocation models, so long as they're pretty basic and not tailored to an individual client. And with, with that, Rick, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you to talk a little bit about the disclosure obligation. Rick, I was going to kick it over to you at this point. All right. Sorry about that. So just a reminder to everyone, we will be answering questions at the end of the call. Uh, and also wanted to make sure that everyone knows the four obligations. Just a quick reminder, there's the disclosure obligation, the care obligation, the conflict of interest obligation, and the compliance obligation. So what is the disclosure obligation? Well, when the SEC proposed the rule, they made it very clear that prior to or at the time of the recommendation, the disclosure would be reasonably, the, the broker dealer would reasonably disclose to the retail customer in writing the material facts relating to the scope and terms of the relationship with the retail customer. They also wanted to make it clear that <clears throat> the disclosure must disclose all material facts. So what is a material fact? That's really the question. So material facts include uh, that the representative is acting as a broker-dealer or a broker or dealer capacity, meaning are they acting as an agent or a principal in a transaction? Material fees and costs that the customer will incur. The type and scope of the services being provided. Limitations on any recommendations that could be made to the retail customer. The broker-dealer also has to disclose the facts relating to the conflicts of interest associated with the recommendation that might include a broker-dealer, uh, might incline a broker-dealer to make a recommendation that is, that is not disinterested. Uh, examples include conflicts associated with proprietary products, payments from third parties, and then components of any compensation arrangements. So when we look at the disclosure obligations, in the proposal release, the SEC said, you know, capacity is key. Fees are key. The type and scope of the services performed are key. They also made it clear that you have to disclose all material facts. 
when I started at the beginning of the presentation by quoting former Justice Louis Brandeis and saying, sunlight is the best disinfectant, the FCC believes that the best way to address conflicts is to make disclosures, full and forthright disclosures. Now, something that you have to keep in mind with respect to the disclosure obligation is these disclosures must be truthful and accurate. A broker dealer or an investment advisor that makes a fraudulent or false disclosure can face an enforcement action and possible civil suits by private parties. And the FCC made this clear when they adopted the rule. So when we look at the disclosure obligation, the Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations, which is the group at the Securities Exchange Commission that will be examining broker dealers, again, will come in and look at the capacity, the material facts, material information. They want to make sure that the notice plus access or access giving some type of information that would constitute sufficient delivery of information. They're also going to look at how the information is delivered to people. Now, in the adopting release to the proposed rule, they made it very clear that you have to give notice to investors that the information is available electronically. You have to allow people to access the information comparable to that which would have been provided in paper form, and, and that it is not so burdensome that the intended recipients cannot effectively access it. So it has to be easily accessible information. Then you have to have evidence to show delivery. This is very important. People always forget that a broker-dealer or an investment advisor has a duty to comply with the law and the rules and regs under the applicable law, but then it also has to be able to demonstrate to the Securities Exchange Commission staff in the OCIE office that, in fact, you have done what you are required to do. So when we look at the disclosure obligation, one method of satisfying the evidence of delivery is basically to obtain information, to in obtain informed consent from the investors. So basically give them sufficient information that they consent to the mechanism for providing that information and that they understand the information. Uh, documents that can be considered uh, when assessing compliance with disclosure obligations, schedules and disclosures regarding fees and expenses to be paid by customers, whether direct or indirect fees, such as custodial fees, account maintenance fees, and fees related to mutual funds and variable annuities have been disclosed, Compensation methods for the registered representatives, including are the registered reps being compensated based on recommendations to the customers, the types of compensation, direct payments to the, uh, by investors, payments by a product sponsor, uh, related conflicts of interest, such as conflicts associated with recommending proprietary products developed by the broker-dealer. So when we look at this, we have to remember, again, you have to disclose material information. That is the key component. And when the FCC is looking at this, they're saying, will the retail investor receive sufficient information so that they are not confused by the information they are receiving? And in deciding whether to engage the broker-dealer to engage in the transactions that they want to invest in. So again, it has to be clear, concise information. Part of this obligation is that we need to make sure we're also monitoring how customers are receiving the information, the material limitations on accounts or services, and a list of proprietary products sold to retail customers. So again, broker-dealers and investment advisors should have a roster, a series of questions, which in fact the SEC staff in the Office of Compliance and Examinations have provided in their guidance on how they will be examining compliance by broker-dealers and investment advisors. Investment advisor disclosures that have, been, have become more robust since the Sunshine speech provide a guidepost. And a good rule of thumb is that there's any possibility a broker-dealer or its associated person or respective affiliates or family members can benefit from making a recommendation that needs to be disclosed. So in addition to what we've talked about, more disclosure is better. You need to make sure you are disclosing risky strategies, such as structured products, big ticket items. Firms should consider how to functionally accommodate delivery of required disclosures in real time to prevent a recommendation from becoming stale. We also need to think about the disclosures that are made in the form CRS. 
Uh, and the form CRS is a good starting point, but it is not sufficient to satisfy the disclosure obligation. The form CRS satisfies some of the obligations, but should be viewed as part of a disclosure regime, not the only disclosure to be made. While disclosures can be made alongside the form CRS, there are permitted methods of delivery of form CRS that are not permitted under reg best interest. I delivery through a medium through which the retail investor uh, made its own inquiry. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Dan to talk about the care obligation. Yeah, so the, the second obligation we're discussing is, is the care obligation under which a broker dealer must exercise reasonable diligence, care, and skill when making a recommendation to a retail customer. So in essence, a lot of what this means is that uh, one needs to think about the risks, the rewards, and the costs um, associated with making a certain recommendation in light of that uh, retail customer's investment profile. Um, what that does is it is similar, but not identical to the standards of conduct under the FINRA, under FINRA suitability rule. So you still have the three general types of um, things that, that, that one would need to look at, including the reasonable basis, um, which is essentially, is it reasonable to make this recommendation to anyone? Um, the customer specific, is this investment in the best interest of this specific customer? Um, and does it fit their investment and risk profile? Uh, and then third, the, the quantitative um, obligation, which is in, the, in when you look at a series of transactions, when viewed as a whole, is that in the best interest of the client? Uh, broker dealers should consider alternatives uh, in terms of what's been offered, uh, in terms of making a reason, uh, finding a reasonable basis for the recommendation. Uh, one of the things that very specifically the staff has said that they're going to be looking at is when uh, a firm makes a recommendation that is higher fee than certain others. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be with care, but if you're using your care obligation, you need to go ahead and think and make that uh, look at it at the time of the recommendation to see, okay, well, are there other alternatives? Are there lower cost, cost products? Are there uh, simpler products, uh, products that are easier to understand that uh, we could be making, we could be recommending instead of something that uh, maybe is more complicated or maybe has higher fees and you plan on um, recommending to, to retail investors. Um, you know, there also must be the, the reasonable basis to believe that the transactions together are not excessive. So there could be instances where each uh, recommendation is actually in the best interest of, of the customer, but uh, that may not necessarily be the case if you go ahead and you look at all of them. For example, uh, if you uh, have a retail customer and uh, perhaps you have a, a, like a, a quant trading type scheme or something else along those lines, that may not be in uh, the best interest just because of how it is that this is happening. Um, and then there are a number of documents that, that they're going to go ahead and look at to see if, if you've complied with the care obligation. So uh, one is the in information uh, collected from retail investors uh, in order to develop their investment profiles. So that could be new account forms, any correspondence, agreements that the customer has with the broker dealer to the extent that it's something where um, you know, part of this has been formed orally and not necessarily through documentation. Uh, then that should be appropriately noted. So that way you have uh, some way of, of showing, okay, well, this is something else additional that we use to develop this, uh, this risk profile for the um, retail investor. Um, another thing too, is that for, for um, you know, br brokers that, that uh, have uh, components where, where recommendations are made automatically, um, that would also be something that you need to go back and think, okay, well, are these the right questions in order to go ahead and, and get to the risk profile that we need to be able to establish in order to, in order to exercise our duty of care? Um, the, the process needs to be in a way that the, the recommendations are in the best interest of the retail customer. Um, so this may result in a change in 
policies and procedures and changes in the way that people are trained and perhaps even changes in the way that people uh, go ahead and what their sales practices might be. Um, and so this may, you know, while, while there is additional work that very well may be involved, um, th that's part of the point uh, is that people do need to take a step back and make sure that they're actually exercising that care and, and putting, having something in place to show this is how we're making sure our, our um, associated persons are, are having, um, you know, are, are complying with their duty of care, um, you know, and, and to be able to look at it, monitor it and, and, and everything else. So it kind of ties in uh, once again with the, the compliance obligation as uh, many of these do. Um, how the broker dealer makes recommendations related to significant investment decisions should also be thought about one of the really big ones that has been brought up over and over and over again is 401k rollovers into an IRA account. Um, that, that is something that it, it should be documented as to how that decision is made, whether or not that's something that's appropriate to for a specific retail customer, uh, whether or not the types of recommendations that are being made uh, with respect to that rollover um, our, our, our work and whether the, the investment strategies are, are in that customer's best interest. Um, things that are riskier, more expensive, more complicated are going to be less likely to be in a, in, in a retail customer's best interest. Um, there definitely can be instances where they are, um, but in order to do so, um, you really need to make sure that, that, you know, this is one of the things that I would say is probably more important to paper. Because, um, you, you know, if you have something where, where, where retail investors are investing in something co complicated or that they don't understand, um, you need to be able to say why it is that you came to that conclusion. Um, and for the quantitative piece to, uh, to look at factors such as turnover rate, cost to equity ratio, and use, use of in and out trading, and, and, and maybe certain strategies to make sure that um, that. that the quantitatively, the recommendations don't, uh, are still in the best interest of the retail investors. Um, and now I will turn it back over to Rick. Thank you, Dan. So when we're talking about the conflict of interest, we have to be very careful because a broker dealer has to establish and maintain policies and procedures that are designed to address conflicts of interest. Uh, part of what we're looking at is, in addition to the traditional role of a broker-dealer to have policies and procedures that are reasonably designed to ensure compliance with the applicable laws, rules, and regulations adopted by the FCC and FINRA, this is an additional responsibility. And the, pro the policies and procedures have to be reasonably designed to identify all conflicts and to make a disclosure of those conflicts and to eliminate them to mitigate conflicts of interest that create an incentive for an associated person or the broker-dealer to place its best interests above the interests of the firm or above the interests of the retail customers. So when we talk about conflicts of interest, a broker-dealer has to make sure that material limitations uh, are placed on recommendations that may, may be made to retail customers. Those are in addition to the traditional suitability responsibilities of a broker-dealer to determine whether a product is in fact suitable for the client. So you have to be careful about offering only proprietary or other limited range of products. The policies and procedures have to be designed to disclose the limitations and associated conflicts and to prevent the limitations from causing the associated person or broker-dealer from placing their interests above the interest of the customer. Uh, compensation has to be evaluated. Uh, you know, it does not permit sales contests. You can't have quotas. You can't have bonuses or cash compensation based on the sale of specific products that may be uh, in violation of the duty of best interest to the client or may not be suitable to the client. Uh, the Advisors Act also provides guidance uh, and enforcement actions have addressed these issues, uh, which provide a useful guidepost for disclosure and mitigation of certain types of conflicts. Uh, Disclosure regimes under the Advisors Act are, while not applicable to broker-dealers, unless the broker-dealer is also registered as an investment advisor, are definitely helpful to look at. So when we talk about conflicts of interest, there are a number of themes to think about 
And some of those focus on, you know, are the policies and procedures designed to address the conflicts that may come up as part of the business? Do they create an incentive or some type of uh, benefit to the associated person to the detriment of the client or the broker-dealer? Are the policies and procedures designed to manage conflicts, to identify conflicts, and to address those conflicts, and to make sure that they're disclosed properly? Um, are the securities that are being offered to clients appropriate? Uh, are the investment strategies appropriate? Are the risks to the client being disclosed and the potential harm to the client or violation of the duty of best interest being disclosed? Again, disclosure is key. Uh, are the policies and procedures designed to address uh, the elimination of sales contests, sales quotas, volume-driven bonuses, et cetera? Are we making sure that you know, offices of a broker-dealer are not running contests that may not be uh, condoned by the management of the firm in the, the headquarters of the firm, for example? Are some types of non-cash compensation being paid to representatives that would violate the duty of best interest and incent them to engage in offering products that may not be appropriate for the clients. So when we look at it, the themes that have come up, you know, we're focusing on the policies and procedures, identifying the conflicts. We're focusing on whether the procedures establish a structure to identify and assess conflicts and to make sure they're disclosed. Uh, and are we monitoring that on an ongoing basis? Your policies and procedures cannot be static you need to periodically review them and make sure that they are still consistent with your business and with your client base and with the applicable laws, rules, and regulations. Do the policies add procedures uh, to provide for disclosure of conflicts and what conflicts are disclosed? Firms should be thinking about that on a routine basis. What conflicts exist in the broker-dealer or the investment advisor and how do we disclose those? Is it a suitable disclosure? Don't just pass a policy and procedure and then leave it alone and believe that it's working. You have to go back and test it and evaluate it periodically. How the policies and procedures provide for mitigation or elimination of conflicts uh, and what conflicts are mitigated or eliminated. So again, you need to be documenting how you're analyzing your conflicts, how you're managing your conflicts, how you're disclosing your conflicts, and how you're continuously monitoring and making sure that the conflict disclosures are suitable to your business. Uh, you need to focus on whether the policies and procedures are tailored to your business and practices. Too many times broker-dealers launch into a new area of business. They start launching new products. They start expanding geographically. They start marketing to different types of clients that they haven't addressed in the past. And they don't go back and revisit whether their policies and procedures fit their new business. Before you launch a new business or new products, now you're also going to have to be thinking about, do the policies and procedures address potential conflicts, mitigation of conflicts, and disclosure of conflicts? The SEC is very transparent. Despite what people think, and we have included at the end of this presentation reference materials which are available, the SEC does issue guidance to people in alerts, disclosures, proposed rules, adopted rules, and enforcement actions. And as part of your compliance program with regulation best interest, we recommend that you monitor this. Now, law firms can help you do that, but ultimately the responsibility is on the broker-dealer to make sure that they are monitoring the guidance coming from the Securities Exchange Commission. And if you look at the enforcement actions that have come out of the investment advisor context and the duties that advisors have to their clients, you do get a good sense of what the Securities Exchange Commission is worried about and how they need to focus on uh, this area and how broker-dealers will now need to focus on it as well. So when we look at the compliance obligation, oh, the so Office of... We, oh, I'm going to so turn it over to Dan, actually. Yep. <laughs> no problem. On a roll. Uh, so... <laughs> um, so, so all of this really does tie into the compliance obligation, and 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 one you know kind of key difference here uh, is that uh, you know while everyone is used to having uh, policies and procedures that they must establish, maintain, and enforce that are reasonably designed to achieve compliance with FINRA rules, 
Uh, now there is this additional layer on top of it where, where OC has jurisdiction over a number of things that really would have been under FINRA's jurisdiction, or at least that, that FINRA generally would have been who, who you would have dealt with. And, and OC does tend to operate a little bit different than, than, than FINRA in some ways, although they do uh, obviously co coordinate quite a bit. Um, but in order to do that, uh, you know, you need to go ahead and look at the policies and procedures to see what controls are in place. Uh, what is it that we do in order to go ahead and remediate noncompliance? Obviously, anything that shows up in a deficiency letter, you want to go ahead and try and fix as, as quickly as, as possible. And that is, uh, and, and now there are, are an entirely different set of things where, where that might happen. Uh, training is key. And training has always been key. It's not sufficient to just go ahead and give people their new policy manual, tell them to read it and have them sign it. They, there really does need to be some training in here so that way there can be appropriate oversight. And you know, oversight is a, is a big part of this too. I mean, um, you know, just, just the other day, there was a, a broker who lost a case because he, you know, missed something that they thought was a red flag and uh and the sec said uh he should have known that there was a something uh funky going on and uh and the court ended up agreeing with them so um and and once again the the, the policies need to be tailored to the firm's business and strategy but but in addition to that it, it really needs to be done in a way where you can actually monitor and enforce i mean there's, there's definitely such a thing as overdoing it when it comes to policies. Um, but there's definitely, you definitely don't want to underdo it. I mean, if you're going to be on, on one side versus the other, you'd rather be on the side that, um, that has tighter compliance policies so you can show that culture of compliance. But if you have something in there that you can't actually monitor, that you can't actually make sure people are following the policies, that, that's more harmful than helpful. Um, so in the OC risk alert, actually, there, there's an appendix of information that, that OC is going to request uh, of broker dealers when they uh, go ahead and, and are doing uh, reg best interest uh, examinations. Now, um, this is not a list of all of them, but here's a number of things that they say they're going to want people to have readily available um, it, when uh, OC comes in and, and inspects. So obviously, this is we're putting you on notice that these are things that you must have. Uh, and, and that we are going to want to see, and it's going to need to be documented. Um, so descriptions of available brokerage and non-brokerage account types. So this would be any affiliate uh, that, that you may have that, that has other types of accounts. So that could be if you're a dual registrar investment advisory account, uh, could be other, you know, multiple types of, of brokerage accounts. Um, copies of fees and charges that may be assessed for retail customers. Now, what may be assessed um, ties back into that conflict of interest. And so, you know, kind of, as you said, the rule of thumb is uh, if, if there's any money that's going to go ahead and come back uh, to whoever it is who's making the recommendation, uh, then it needs to be disclosed. Um, and that's something that needs to be maintained. Um, uh, grids and schedules that, that are given to personnel uh, setting forth compensation methods. Uh, list of proprietary products. Assume anything that they ask the list for a list of. Uh, they're going to want to look beyond that list. It's not just the list. If there's something that isn't obvious, if there's something that requires a deeper dive, you should also have documentation on hand for them to, to be able to go into that deeper dive. Um, Marketing materials that use the term advisor or advisor. Obviously, this is something you're not allowed to do anymore uh, as a, um, you know, as a registered broker dealer, but there may be issues with dual registrants. Um, copies of the written policies and procedures and memos on which you rely to, um, to comply with reg best interest. Um, so the uh, conflict mitigation procedures. Um, how the form CRS gets updated uh, and how it is that when it is that it's going to get updated, how do you make a determination as to whether or not something is material? Uh, how do you invest uh, and update investment profiles for your, um, for your clients? I mean, that, that may be something that changes over time and, and uh, needs to be uh, watched and monitored. Uh, and then understanding the risks, rewards, and costs associated with products uh, offered to retail customers. So this is 
you know, making sure um, your, your people actually know the risks and rewards and are able to go ahead and explain those. Um, included in, the, in this is uh, how the firm determines that it has a reasonable basis to believe that it makes the recommendation in the best interest of a retail customer. This one, you know, it, it really, you can't possibly have um, every single recommendation written down uh, that you would make to any retail customer. That would be impossible to enforce. But uh, you should have ways, you know, written procedures and, and things that are in writing about things that, you know, are recommendations that the SEC might said, well, we really want to know why that one's in the best interest of a retail customer. So this is the high cost products. These are complex products, things like that. Um, Supervisory and compliance reviews before recommending uh, any account or product. Um, and so uh, th this is something that, uh, you know, obviously it's best to self audit uh, in a number of these ways. And, uh, and then, you know, how it is that you go ahead and monitor uh, and surveil uh, training to establish uh, compliance with, with reg best interest. Um, they'll also be looking for copies of the, the form CRS relationship summaries training materials, surveillance and monitoring reports, uh, and then for the, period, the, the scope period, which comes after, uh, the, the list of all new accounts, including new accounts established for existing customers, uh, blotters containing uh, all trading conducted on behalf of individual customers, and the, a list of the retail customer for whom a customer investment profile was created or updated. Uh, and from here, I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Peter. Thanks, Dan. So as, as Dan said at the outset of our talk today, a part of the rulemaking package put in place last summer is a new form CRS. Form CRS disclosure requirements going to apply to both broker-dealers and SEC-registered investment advisor firms. Form CRS is a brief relationship summary that investment advisors and BDs must provide to their retail investors, with that term using essentially the same definition of a retail customer under Reg BI that we talked about, i.e. natural persons, et cetera. Um, here, I'll just throw in a useful tidbit that may come up, is that an advisor to a private fund would not be obligated to provide a form CRS to the fund because it's a non-natural person or it's underlying natural person investors. Each broker-dealer or investment advisor may only prepare one form CRS that summarizes all of their principal relationships and services that it offers to retail investors. Just as an example, if a BD offers a range of brokerage services and accounts to retail investors, that broker-dealer would be required to prepare a single uh, form CRS describing and hitting on all of their different services. For advisor firms, the new form CRS is going to be in addition to the currently required form ADV and brochure disclosure. The form CRS relationship summary does not replace or substitute for any reporting or disclosure obligations of SEC registered firms. Form CRS is required to address specific items, <clears throat> one, number one being an intro, two being relationships and services, three being fees, costs, conflicts, and standard of conduct, four, disciplinary history, and five, an additional info section. Form CRS and its instructions provide some pretty specific instructions with respect to each item. Just as a couple of examples, the form is required to include a standardized introductory paragraph, as well as a link to the SEC's investor education website, in the form, CRS firms must state whether they offer brokerage services, investment advisory services, or both. In addition, they must summarize principal services, accounts, and investments made available to clients and any material limitation on those services, i.e. hit on topics such as um, investment authority, account minimums, etc. Firms in a form CRS must also include Q&A style conversation starter questions for retail investors. Um, moving along, 
informed CRS, the FCC integrated the discussion of fees, costs, conflicts of interest, and standard of conduct into a single item for the form. However, that info is supposed to appear as separate consecutive subsections so that each topic is distinct for investors and firms would be required in this item to disclose how their investment professionals are compensated in conflicts of interest that may arise from those arrangements. With respect to the filing, delivery, and updating of the form, ultimately the form CRS must be filed with the SEC and delivered to retail investors. Firms that are registered with the SEC prior to June 30th, 2020 must file form CRS before June 30. Then on or after June 30, investment advisors and BDs with a pending registration must file their form CRS with the registration materials. I'll point out that once filed, the relationship summary is going to be publicly accessible on the SEC's site and is also required to be posted on the firm's website. Skipping around a little on us here, investment advisors must initially deliver form CRS to their new and prospective retail investors before or at the time <clears throat> uh, they enter into an advisory relationship. Broker-dealers must deliver the form CRS to new and prospective investors before or at the earlier of one, a recommendation of an account type, securities transaction, or investment strategy involving securities. Two, placing an order for a retail investor, or three, the opening of a brokerage account for a retail investor. For existing clients, investment advisors and BDs are required to provide the form CRS within 30 days after the required filing date with the SEC. I'll note there are times where a firm may be required to again deliver the most recent version of a form CRS to an existing retail investor. Also of note, investment advisors and BDs may use electronic delivery for form CRS, but must provide a free paper copy of the form upon request. Form CRS must be updated within 30 days whenever the form becomes materially inaccurate. Here, firms are allowed to communicate form updates to existing clients within 60 days but the firm is supposed to highlight any changes for those clients. Form CRS has some pretty nitpicky formatting and stylistic instructions. I'll just note here a couple of them. Firms are required to respond to each item and provide responses in the same order as they appear in the instructions. The relationship summary may not exceed two pages. Um, or four pages if you're a duly registered firm. And of course, firms have to use reasonable paper size, font size, and margins. The conversation style questions I, I mentioned earlier must be formatted in a way to make them noticeable and prominent. And with that, there, I'll also point out there's some instructions on firms are supposed to use white space and charts and all sorts of uh, gadgets to make the form more digestible. Um, with that, Emma, I'll kick it to you. I think you may have a question for the audience. Yes, thank you. This is the CLE polling question. In order to receive your CLE certificate of attendance, you will need to answer this polling question. We're going to give you about a minute to do so. As a reminder, we will be emailing out the CLE certificates to all those who answered this polling question um, within 48 hours.
All right, back to you guys. All right, so uh, OC's area of focus when it comes to uh, form CRS. Um, one of the really big ones is going to be delivery. Have you done it in a timely manner? Did you post it on the firm's website in the way you're supposed to? How's your process for delivering to new retail investors? And one of the things here is that a recommendation uh, with respect to, to uh, delivery of the form CRS is a little bit broader. Uh, and so that could be recommending opening an account. And so what happens uh, if, if, in terms of uh, delivering form CRS if you're in a place that uh, is not necessarily easy to deliver something? Um, formatting, uh, one of the big things uh, that they really want is to make sure that uh, everything is as plain English as possible. Everything is um, as basic as possible to some extent. You need to take uh, into effect the, the level of sophistication of your retail clients. But, um, you know, but they'll go, they're going to want, once again, charts and things, anything that makes it easier to read, anything that makes it easier to understand. Um, and, and if it seems, uh, you know, unduly unwieldy, then uh, you may get comments in that area. Um, updating, what are your policies and procedures to update the relationship summary? Um, you know, not only is there the timing question, but it's not necessarily going to be the same as what a material change is that would require you to uh, amend part two of form ADV or that would require you to file a continuing membership application. So, um, you know, determining what is actually going to be material with respect to a retail customer, because that's the lens that you need to be looking through it at. Um, is going to be something else that they're looking at. And then, of course, what policies and procedures you have with respect to uh, record keeping and the like. Um, in terms of the content, you need to make sure that everything is true, accurate, not misleading. This is classic 10B5 type of stuff. Um, you need to make sure that you've disclosed everything fairly. You've disclosed your fees and costs fairly, your conflicts of interest. Um, the, how it is that, that things may go get paid through indirectly, uh, how people get compensated, uh, how people get incentivized. And so really, at the end of the day, what they're looking for is, is information of that, that will allow people to uh, understand, well, is, is this a firm that I want to um, you know, work with? And over to Rick. Thank you, Dan. So we're, we're almost at the end of the presentation here. One last thing that people should keep in mind is that we do have also state laws that apply to broker dealers and investment advisors. Uh, the laws of those states are in addition to the federal rules and the SEC rules and applicable federal securities laws that apply to you. So you're going to need to be careful and make sure that your disclosures under regulation best interest in the form CRS are consistent with state law as well. Uh, beyond that, I wanted to answer one question that came up uh, from one of our attendees, and the question was, what about a retail investor that invests via a trust or other entity? This issue was actually addressed on page 33342 in the Federal Register version of the adopting release, which is included in our materials, and the SEC noted that uh, when they proposed the definition of retail customer, there was a discussion about whether it should go beyond natural persons to any person uh, to cover non-natural persons such as trusts that represent the assets of a natural person. The SEC noted in the adopting release that they believe this change, uh, the rule that they adopted in the clarification provides certainty that institutions and certain professional fiduciaries are not covered for purposes of Reg BI. However, it would retain coverage of certain legal entities trusts that represent the assets of a natural person specifically identified in the proposing release as retail customers. So a trust that is representing the interest of a person that would be a retail customer would in fact be a retail customer for purposes of regulation BI. With that, are there any other questions, Emma, that we have time to address in the next three to five minutes? We did not receive any additional questions from the audience. Okay, well, 
I want to make sure that everybody knows that Regulation BI does have compliance dates that are set forth in the presentation. A copy of this presentation will be posted on the Polsonelli website and on the BIT blog, both the recording and the materials with links to all of the reference materials. We encourage you to take time to look at this presentation to make sure that you are prepared for the Reg BI and the Form CRS compliance dates. And of course, if you have questions after this presentation, each of the speakers, Rick Levine, Daniel McAvoy, and Peter Waltz are available to answer those questions for you. We appreciate you taking the time to listen into this webinar, and we appreciate your continuing uh, trust in us as your advisors. And if you're not a client of our firm, we still would be happy to speak with you about this going forward. Thank you all very much.